All right, have a seat. Good morning. How is everybody? Good. We got excellent and thankful. We'll take both of those. Well, it is good to be with you. We are in our second week of um, our third summer study through what we call short stories. This is the third summer in a row, right? Right, third. That we have studied um, parables of Jesus in the summer. We're calling them short stories. Um, These stories that Jesus used many times in order to teach truths about people and about God. And oftentimes they were confusing and oftentimes we read them and and aren't sure what they mean. And we're going to dig into this one today that um, as God's word is apt to do, kind of slapped me upside the head um, in my preparation. I um, I spent some time recently with a friend. He's been a long, long time, very good, very close friend. And, and this guy loves the Lord and he has faithfully served the Lord in his life. And his wife loves the Lord and they've raised two adult children who love the Lord. And he truly is just a humble, um, gracious man. He has had and still enjoys a, a successful career in the oil business. But when we were visiting, he was sharing with me that he's contemplating a career change. And he is thinking about leaving his job in the oil business and going to work leading a what is really a billion-dollar charitable foundation that gives um, lots of gifts to worthwhile Christian endeavors primarily. And he was talking about the decision before him, and he said, you know, I'll make a lot less money, but that really doesn't matter because we have enough. And I thought, how in the what to ever say those words, we have enough. But then he said this, he goes, the the real thing is, if I leave my job, I'm going to be leaving millions, with an S, of dollars in stock options on the table. And he said, I'm having to decide if I want to give up my own, my wife and our, our own desires and dreams for philanthropy in order to give someone else's money away. And I'm sitting there and I'm nodding and I'm smiling and I'm listening and I have this anger that I feel welling up inside me. And I started thinking, you know, as I've pursued my calling, made two great changes in the midst of my career in ministry since the year 2000. Um, Both of those involved a pay cut, and both of those were in cities with higher costs of living. And I remember as Stephanie and I assessed both of those opportunities, we felt very strongly that we weren't supposed to consider money in those decisions. That we didn't want money to guide us because we both know that we can really kind of cling to that. And so we made those decisions without really over-processing the financial side of it. And the truth is, as we've made every decision in our ministry career, God has more than provided. He has not just provided our needs. He has given us more than our needs. And he's often used miraculous means to do that. But as my friend talked, I felt anger. I was sitting there thinking, why does he get to process this job change as one of just pros and cons? How come he gets to consider the financial implications when we never felt freedom to consider those things? I wouldn't leave San Francisco just because it's expensive to live here. I could never do that? How come he gets to? And I felt, honestly, a sense of bitterness towards God. I thought, well, maybe I should have just stayed working, made lots of money, 
risen up the ranks, and then gone into ministry. Instead of spending these prime years of, of income growth, making a little and doing what God called us to do. But I realized at the end of the day, as I sat there and processed, I knew in my head, God has never left us hanging. He has always given us exactly what he promised us. He's always enabled us to do what he has called us to do. And I realized I'm not really angry at God. I'm jealous of my friend, of his financial success. I wanted what he had. God's always given us everything we needed and more, but I wanted more than that. And then I read this week's parable, and I was like, dang it. Shot me down again, yes. Today we are going to look at this parable, and it, I just, it was so rich to me and so convicting and also so encouraging. This picture of a compassionate and a generous and a gracious and a patient God. And I think for some of you like me, this parable may be designed to challenge you. For others of you, it may be designed to encourage you. And I, I pray this morning that God would use it how he desires in your life. We are in the book of Matthew. First book of the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Matthew chapter 20. The parable of the laborers in the vineyard. We're going to start at verse 1. We're going to read through verse 16. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, so so the first hour would be like 6 a.m., about the third hour, 9 a.m., he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said to them, to them he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour, or about noon, and the ninth hour, or about three, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, or about 5 p.m., he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. And he said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, which would be about 6 p.m., an hour later, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those who hired, those hired about the 11th hour came... The ones hired at five o'clock, and this is an hour later, each of them received a denarius. Now, when those hired first came at 6 a.m., they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, these last workers only worked one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first 
last. This particular parable is is sort of a companion parable to the parable of the rich young man that that precedes it in chapter 19. Jesus is talking here to his disciples. So for us, that means he's talking to those of us who follow Christ, those of us who know Christ. And he's talking to them about the kingdom of heaven, which means he's talking to them about salvation. He's talking to them about eternal life. He's talking to them about heavenly citizenship. And in chapter 19, just before this, he talked about how riches and how earthly things can be a barrier because we um, have a tendency to find our hope and our dependence in those things. And that causes us from a failure to see uh, the provision of all of what we truly need in Jesus Christ. And as he's talking about it, it confuses the disciples as it often does. The disciples are often confused. And in chapter 19, verse 27, Peter has asked, he says, I want to know what we are going to get out of this. We have left everything. What are we going to get out of this? The disciples had a tendency. They wanted to know um, that they would be duly compensated for leaving everything to follow Christ. And Christ is consistently trying to teach them that he is the prize of their salvation. So just before what we read, he ends chapter 19 with the same words he ends the parable we just read with. But many who are first will be last and the last first. And then he jumps into this parable about laborers in the vineyard. And just so you kind of understand the characters in this particular parable, the landowner in this parable is God, represents God. The foreman in this parable represents God's son, Jesus Christ. The vineyard represents the kingdom of heaven. The workers represent Christ followers. The daily pay that they received for their labors represents salvation. The work day represents the life of a believer. And the end of the day represents eternity. If you'll think about those things as we talk about this, um, I think that'll help us kind of process what Jesus is trying to teach through this parable. This particular scenario with this landowner, the master of the house or the vineyard owner, whatever you want to call him, going out several times a day to find laborers, that scenario would have been very common to the disciples and the people who would have been hearing this parable, especially at harvest time. Um, They would have uh, gone to get people in to Harvest the grapes as quickly as possible before the rainy season came. Because if the rain came before they were harvested, it would ruin the grapes. A lot of these landowners didn't have full-time employees enough to do the harvest. So they would go get, essentially, day laborers. And these day laborers that they would hire would have been socially uh, in the hierarchy of the society. They would have been on the lowest rung of the social ladder. But they were not like lazy beggars. The fact that it says they were standing idle in the marketplace does not mean they were lazy. They were in the marketplace because they were actively looking for work. Day laborers would be found in the town marketplace at this time on purpose, waiting and seeking labor. I remember in Midland, we had a couple places like this where where people would gather in a parking lot and they were willing to work on farms or they were willing to work in construction. And if you had a need for employees, you would drive over there and see if you could find anybody to hire. I was at uh, Colma one Friday morning and there's a, a contractor's Home Depot that's across the street from the other Home Depot. 
And the same thing, there was a, a, a parking lot with guys just standing around, and I saw a pickup truck drive, and they talk, and they're making a deal for work. It's where you put together um, workers and employers. Laborers and employers connect in this place. That's what was happening here. Now, the people who were waiting at the various stages of the day, so some got hired at 6 a.m., some didn't get hired till noon, some didn't get hired till 3 There was some reason that they were probably there late. Many of them may have had a short-term job that they got to do in the morning. They came back to see if they could get another job. Or there could have been something about them that made them unhirable. Maybe they had a physical problem or there was just something that that they couldn't get work. They were overlooked and they were not hired. I love in verse 7 when they ask, why are you standing here idle? And the guy says, because no one hired me. Like, Captain Obvious. It's kind of like when I ask my kids, why, didn't, why is your bed not made? Because I didn't make it. You know, that, that's what's happening here. But this whole scenario, this would have been a very common picture to them until what happens at the end. Now, I want to talk about this because I, think there's, I don't think this is so much about us as it is about the magnitude of, of God. And the magnitude of of the graciousness and generosity of God in our salvations. But I think there is one thing that we have to kind of take into our discussion. One overarching truth in this passage that we have to start with. That we have to base everything else that we see in this around. And that is this. No Christian gets what they deserve. And that is a good thing. This is the truth. Not one of us in this room, on our own, deserve anything other than full separation from God. Separation in our time on earth and separation for eternity in a very real place called hell. Romans 3.10 says that none is righteous. There is not one person who is righteous. No, it says not one. Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned. And fallen short of the glory of God. Everyone has sinned. Everyone is separated from God. Everyone is by definition unpure. In our natural state. Now if you're not a Christian. And even if you are a Christian. This truth, this reality may sound harsh. It may sound ridiculous. It does not fit with our modern self-esteem and self-valuation culture. And I I get it. But you can't deny it and we can't water it down. Because if you do not get that reality about yourself. If I don't understand that about myself. That reality that I deserve nothing. That is a key to understanding both the magnitude of what it means to be saved. And the truth of what it means to follow Christ. We have to understand that the same grace was required to save the person, uh, to save, save the most vile terrorists and the sweetest little grandma. The same grace was required to save the person who accepts the Lord at age seven, lives their whole life in service to Christ, and the person who accepts the Lord at age 70 after living a life of selfish sin and self-absorbed destructive behavior. We have to understand that there's no distinction in what what was required to save us. 
Romans 3.23 goes on to say, it says we've fallen short of the glory of God. We all have. But then it says that we can be justified. We can be made holy. We can be made pure through the gift of grace. Gift of grace. Every one of us, every one of us in this room is in the exact same boat, but for Jesus. But for God's son. And his sacrifice, 2 Corinthians 5.21, I love this passage. God made him who knew no sin, God made Jesus who did not know sin to become sin. So that in Jesus, we, all the sinners, might become the righteousness of God. We should all be incredibly grateful that we don't get what we deserve. My experience, and I think... um, I think this will hold true that that many people fall in one of two categories in this regard with this truth. Some people think they deserve more than God gives. I see this a lot of times. I think you can see this in churches. You can see this in, in the dynamic of I've been in this church for a long time. Where there's almost a sense of I own this church. And... Somebody new comes in and, and, and all of a sudden starts leading something or changes are made and that person wasn't consulted and there's this sense of bitterness and anger and frustration. You see it with longtime Christians who have followed the Lord faithfully and then somebody comes out of this really bad background and they're saved and there's an anger, there's a frustration that, that those people got to live that life and we end up with the same. Really, really religious Christians the ones who, who pride themselves on the depth of their sacrifice, they often have this sense of feeling that they deserve more than what God has given them. I think in this particular passage, if you think about the disciples as, as Jesus was talking to them, if you think about what was happening in chapter 19, you think about Peter's question, uh, what are we going to get out of this? In this particular parable, um, the disciples are represented by the laborers who worked all day. And truly they were, the the disciples were the early adopters of Christianity. And it is very true that their path, their hard, their road of Christianity would likely be much harder than those who would come after them, including us. But as, as, as Jesus is talking and as he, he's hearing what the disciples are constantly asking about their rewards and what they're going to get out of this deal... I was thinking, you know, this I deserve more mentality can be pride. Thinking we are better than we are. Thinking we deserve something better. Or really, there's no more prideful thing to do than to tell God what we think he should do with his resources. But in the parable, and this was so struck me so much with my own struggles this week with my friend. It's really a picture of envy. This wasn't really that the, deci- that the laborers were calling um, the landowner, the, the, the disciples might be calling God unjust. It was just that the workers who had worked longer were jealous of what the other workers received. So if they had, they would have been content with their denarius if the workers who had worked less had gotten less. They were upset when those people got the same thing they did. I think when we are envious of other Christians, when we think that we deserve what another Christian might get, I think we have forgotten what we truly deserve. And, and like I said, what we truly deserve is not desirable. 
The second category under this idea of, of what we deserve are some, pe- some people think they deserve more than what God gives. Other people think they deserve less than what God gives. There are some people who think they deserve more because of how much they have worked. And there are others who cannot imagine that they could ever work enough to receive salvation from God. To receive what God has for them in heaven. Oftentimes these are believers. They're tired, but they are always on a quest to do more. They speak grace, but they live a life of performance based on acceptance. And they are often tired and they are often bitter. But there are others who have never entered a relationship with God because they see the darkness of their past or they see the darkness of their present. They see how bad they were. They see the struggles they had. They see the sins they committed. They see the rebellion against God that defines or defined their lives. And they can't imagine that salvation could be theirs. And instead of of accepting what God has for them, they accept the response that they think God will give them. They assume rejection instead of accepting the offer of the full benefit of salvation, no matter their past. So I wonder, as we think about this, and as maybe I hope you try to kind of see where on that spectrum you fall, what I see in this parable is that for all people, whether you are in the first or the second, or maybe a little both at different times, this is a glorious parable. A glorious parable about God and about his amazing generosity that is evident in our salvation through Jesus. We see so much of God's character in this. Some of us may need to be broken a little to see it. And some of us may be so broken that we are dying for this. The first thing that we see is this. God is compassionate. I think so often we associate God's compassion, like in this parable, we associate his compassion with the workers that came later. We associate his compassion with the weaker, the ones we see and and observe as being weaker or having less or being outcasts. If you were hired to work at five o'clock, you were deserving of compassion, that's for sure. This may have been the only way that a person is going to feed themselves or their family. And here it is, 5 o'clock. The day is an hour away from being over. Just imagine the desperation in those people. They're still there at 5 o'clock hoping for something. But sometimes we can get so lost in seeing that compassion that God had for those people that we forget that as, as desperate as those people are, we are just as desperate Each one of us, we are equally unworthy. We are equally needy. We are equally desperate. We are equally in need of God's compassion. And what this parable shows us is that he gives his compassion equally. I love um, this picture of of a before and after of, of salvation that Paul gives in his letter to Titus. What Paul describes here as as life before Jesus applies to each one of us. And what he describes as the hope after Jesus applies to each one of us. It should be on your screen. This is Titus 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. 
That is all of us before we know Christ. Verse 4, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Every one of us that desperate, every one of us receives a denarius. Second Peter 3.9 describes God as being patient, not wishing that any of us should perish, but wishing that all of us should reach repentance. God is compassionate because none of us deserve salvation, yet he shows compassion to everyone who repents and calls on the name of Jesus. Number two, God always gives what he promises, and he always gives more than we deserve. He is just, but he's actually beyond justice. The longer workers in this parable got exactly what God promised them. The other workers got more than what their work might have justified. But the truth is that every one of those workers in that parable got more than what was deserved because the landowner could have walked by each and every one of them. The ones that worked all day could have never gotten hired onto the job in the first place. They all got more than they deserved, not just the ones that worked an hour. For each of us, we have to remember the gift that our salvation is. If we think God unjust, then we need to remember that absent any interaction on his part on our, our behalf, our separation from him in sin before our salvation warrants eternal separation. God's justness is what required Jesus to die. Justice is served when just payment is extracted, but we could never pay what was required to save us. And that is why God sent his son to make the payment for us. God is the definition of just, but in many ways, our salvation in and of itself is beyond just. As Christians, we get more than a mansion in heaven. We get all of what he has promised us, joy and peace and purpose and fulfillment. We get identity here and we get eternity and all of that with him forever in heaven because God always gives what he promises. And he has promised that if you call in the name of Jesus, you will be saved. And he, he, he never fails to answer a promise. I love what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1.20. The problem is we often demand things of him that he has not promised. But if we go to his word, he is faithful to make promise after promise after promise to us. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1.20, the answer to every one of his promises is yes. In Christ Jesus, God always follows through on his promises. Number three, God does not pay us. God blesses us. God graces us. God does not pay us. He gives us a gift, wholly unearned. God does not reward us with salvation. 
He graces us with salvation, holy, unearned. We don't earn his favor after we are saved. We don't have to white-knuckle it through life making sure that we do the right thing or don't do the wrong thing. Salvation is ours through grace alone. Ephesians 2.8 says it is by grace we are saved, through faith, not by works, but a gift, so that none of us can boast about anything. Salvation is a gift from God. Now, the amazing thing about that gift is the more we get what we have received, the more we understand it, the more we let it soak in that we have been given abundant life on earth, that we have been saved for eternity, the more we let that sink in and understand it, the more our lives will change. Tim Keller said this. I read this quote this week. The deeper the experience of the free grace of God, the more generous in all ways we must become. But if we, are th- if we think in the way we live that we are earning something, we miss the reality of what it means to be saved. And, and, one of, and, and I think many of us are missing that. Because if we think that we somehow can earn something, then we sort of are treating God as just another tool in our toolbox along with all the other tools of our own wonderfulness. And we're missing uh, the, the critical element of our salvation, that he is everything. We miss the miracle of our salvation. You know what the miracle of it is just for me? This is just how I contemplate it. The miracle of my salvation, it's not that I get to go to heaven when I die. It is fully unconditional love right now. It is fully undeserved affection. He doesn't just love us. He likes us. And it is eternal acceptance with him in heaven. When you get that you've received that, it cannot help but change the life of those who receive it. Sometimes pastors fear this kind of message. Because we think everybody's going to fit, just quit serving and they're just going to go live in their back to their worldly lives. If they don't think they have to do something, they won't do it. And that, that's wrong. Because if we hear this sort of message and then we think, oh, good, I don't, it doesn't matter what I do. The reality is I'm not sure you've ever heard it. You don't understand the reality of the grace that saved you. As Christians, the way we live our life changes. But we don't live in a certain way to earn something from God. We live in a certain way because we have received something freely from God. And there's a great difference. If we get the magnitude of our salvation, we cannot help but change the way we live. He's not paying us. He has blessed us and he has graced us and it changes our lives. And number four, Jesus is the great equalizer. I love this about this passage. This is something that has been resonating with me just as I struggle to understand what it means to be identified in Christ. But the church should be the most egalitarian place on earth. Now, I do not mean in the roles that we play. We spend a lot, we spend way too much time worrying about what we do in the church. What I mean by that is in the singular identity that each of us share as Christ followers. 
All of our differences and our talents should be celebrated, but not ranked. No position in the church should be celebrated over any other position. There should be no adjectives in front of who we are as Christ followers. We come together as Christians with one singular identity. No matter the roles that we play, this is not about what, who should get to do what in the church. We come together with one singular identity because not one of us brought anything to the table in order to be a part of Christ's church. Each of us came to the cross equally. And as redeemed sinners, we have equal value. How, how amazing is this? We, we have so much to share with the world in this. Galatians 3.28 says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. It doesn't mean we aren't different. It doesn't mean we don't have different roles to play. But what it means is we are identified as one in the church in Christ Jesus. Our life as Christ followers is not about our rights. Or asserting them. Do you know that as you seek to follow Christ, what it's really about is a self-denial of your rights. When we say we follow Christ, if you read his teachings to his disciples, you will see these things. He says that we, if we're going to follow him, we leave all. We die to all. We endure all. And we serve all. Just after this parable in Matthew 20, 26, and 28, Jesus tells his disciples this. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. Within the church, if we are going to defer to each other, if we are going to honor each other, if we are going to respect each other, if we are going to rejoice with each other, if we are going to weep with each other, we will only be able to do those things when we get the truth that not one of us is worthy of, our, of the salvation we freely received when we surrendered our lives, when we surrendered control of our lives back to Jesus or to Jesus. We get this when we realize that everything we have is a gracious gift for which only Jesus Christ could have paid the cost. Everyone in this room comes to the cross at the same level and he offers the same salvation to each one of us in exactly the same way. Jesus is the great equalizer. So I want you to think about a couple things as we finish this morning. I wonder as you hear these things, are you challenged or are you encouraged? Or maybe a little bit of both. But do you sit here and do you realize that you have bitterness or frustration because you think you deserve something more than what God has promised and given you? Do you see others who seem to receive more even though in your estimation those people are doing much less? For those of you who in that camp today, God may be calling you to repentance and reflection. Repentance of your envy 
and reflection on the gift of your salvation, the rescue that salvation gave you, the way that your salvation rescued you from all that you truly deserve. Maybe you sit in this room and you are a follower of Jesus, but you are still a striver trying to earn or prove something to God. Maybe he is calling you, maybe God is calling you this morning just to rest in the grace that saved you today. Maybe he's calling you to sit there and rest in the reality that your eternity is secure and to realize that while you remain on this earth, you still have promises from him that he is waiting for you to claim. Maybe you've never entered a relationship with Jesus and you sit in this room and you sit there and you realize that you have felt that your past is too ugly or that it's too late. This morning as I was praying before coming out here, I just thought there may be people in this room who are standing there here at the five o'clock hour. You're standing here and you're feeling hopeless and worthless and you're wondering if you've missed your chance. The truth is, it is never too late until it is too late because six o'clock will come. Eternity will come. And it's heartbreaking to imagine that there are people sitting and, and they are being offered something that I know because it has changed my life that it can change their lives. And they feel that they aren't worthy or that it's too late to take it. My prayer today is that you, if, you, if that is you in this room, that you would choose today to surrender to God as he stands here at your five o'clock hour and that you would receive the full measure of the gift of eternal life that he has for you, the same eternal life that he gave me. And my prayer for all of us this morning is that our hearts and our minds, every one of us would be so full, if we know Christ, that they would, it would be so full of the magnitude of what God has given us the magnitude of what it means that we are saved. And if you don't know Christ, my prayer is that your heart would be full of a, of a sense of the amazing thing that he is offering you this morning. If you know Christ in this room, my prayer is that we would be unable to contain our desire for all people to receive the gift that we've been given. Kevin DeYoung said this, we of all people should be the most loving because we have received a love most undeservedly God rejoices over every lost sinner saved no matter how good or bad you might think you are if you know Christ there was rejoicing in heaven over you and if you don't know him there will be rejoicing when you meet him and my prayer as a church is that we would no matter what we would join in the rejoicing of heaven over the saved salvation of lost sinners.